Hello and welcome to the Robert A. Heinlein Book Club. In every episode of this podcast, I'll be reading a bit of the works of Robert A. Heinlein in a rough chronological order of, of publication, but uh, we're actually starting here with an exception to that rule. We'll be reading the last thing that he was published, that he published after he died, but it was actually written one of the first things he wrote. And it's called For Us the Living. I talked about this in the last episode, giving my overall thoughts and my, my overall support of this book, which I came in with skepticism. I did not, um, I didn't think the politics were going to impress me as much as they did. I didn't know it was a social credit novel even. I, I thought it would be um, some other kind of more traditional libertarian thing. And this is me trying to get my handle on Robert E. Heinlein's politics, which is one reason I'm kind of interested in this. I, I think I usually come in with to writers with with an idea of where their politics are. But I've read a fair amount of Heinlein, but I'm still not sure. I think he's he does have that kind of... that there's something very deeply American about him, something very much tied to the frontier. And... Um, and tied to kind of some American ethos of of individuality, but at the same time, he he just here he's supporting the social credit system, which certainly is not really free market capitalism. It's it's presenting some very significant role for the state in managing that. Now, of course, that's in the context of the Great Depression. We'll see if his views on these things change over time uh, in the years after World War II, and as he writes more. But, of course, during the Great Depression, that was the issue. It wasn't an issue of lack of capacity. There were, still, there were mines and factories uh, aplenty. There was plenty of space to produce. World War II proved that. Um, but there wasn't a consumption base for it, right? Due, due, due to deflation or the gold standard or, or high interest rates or you know, whatever policy you want to blame in part for that. But inequality is really what it comes down to so you address inequality by giving people in this this book is described as a heritage so um i guess i again there's no plot to this book um the the story really just is um a guy wakes up in the future and he becomes the interlocutor in order to uh ask questions about the current future system, the, the, the system that's current at the time of the, the setting of the novel, and then he asks questions from his own point of view, right? This is the standard trope in utopian fiction, right? So you have the guy from the past is, or from the other culture being the dummy who has to be educated about the better way to run society. It's, it's very reminiscent of like looking backward. It's also reminiscent of, I think, The Iron Heel by Jack London in that it's like a set of like lectures which that book is. Um, but I, I think looking backward is the better metaphor because that's also a set of lectures, essentially. And there the argument is for also for an American utopia. So uh, I think this this could be read alongside looking backward without too much um, 
it wouldn't be forced to do that. It, it would be, you would be writing, reading books that are akin to each other in a lot of ways, at least structurally and narratively, and in this effort to try to find an American solution to the economic problems of the modern world. Right? So that's a, that's a very patriotic American thing to do, actually, right? To, to not just follow European trends, right? Um, not just say, well, we'll just, we'll just borrow European socialism. Or we'll just borrow European fascism, or we'll just borrow uh, European concepts of rights, or whatever. Right? No, that like this is the new world. So there's got to be a different, unique place for our unique conditions, and, and a different, a unique response tied to our conditions. And I think that's what Heinlein's trying to do here with this social credit um, concept. Now, of course, he didn't invent that. It comes from from others, but it's um, it's really well developed here. Um, I, th I think this would just be a great introduction to the ideas of, of social credit um, as well as some of his other more uh, his, his more uh, radical views about marriage and family and things like that which I, I talked about in the last episode I, I don't want to necessarily repeat that um, kind of I could have probably stopped this after the last episode and maybe if you're listening you might agree uh, and say this is a really horrible start to the Robert E. Heinlein Robert A. Heinlein um, book club where you're you're kind of wasting a whole episode on a, on a book you already talked about well partially this is my my tendency to try to want to delve as deep as possible and to meditate on books a little bit at a time um maybe i should have just looked at the first half and then did the second half like i would in the 100 pages series but anyways uh what are some other things let me just kind of skim through the book and tell you some of the things that i um that I noticed are, are noteworthy anyways. Um, one is, is, is the internet. So there's a, a basically a vision of the internet. Uh, when our character Diana, she's the one who basically adopts this, this uh, guy from the past and begins introducing to him to all the aspects of society, particularly she's the, the entryway into like the marriage and sexual relations aspect of it because they become lovers and it's through her that he's forced to deal with his jealousy. Uh, and eventually he gets committed and has to go through some kind of psychotherapy in order to cure that. That's another aspect I mentioned in the last episode as well. Um, so it's, anyways, she's trying to find out something about him um, his past or, or the body he's in or, or something to try to help him. And she, she has a unique identification. It's Diana 1603984048A. So every Diana would have their own unique designation, like their ID card. So every, every person has an identity that way. And then she would ask for like, into the, she'd call into the archives and ask for a specific bit of information, and then uh, char. And then there'd be like a, a standard rate for that kind of information. He's, you know, Heinlein's thinking, you know, now the internet, you still have to pay for a lot of stuff, I suppose. Local news, if you want those reports, you have to pay the fee or whatever to get in. But if you know, a lot of information you can just get for free, right? A lot of knowledge you can just get for free. But that's not what Heinlein's thinking. He's thinking it's basically like a research service that's almost instantaneous or, or as close as he can imagine to instantaneous that you basically put in your inquiry you offer expediated rate or not which we don't get the prices for things but you assume it's there uh that there's like a table of of that based on the knowledge acquired and how fast you want it and then there's like a tip 
that is offered too. Bonus on 30 minutes, she gives. She, she mentions that. She gives that several times in these kind of information searches. So this is kind of a, a, a window into the post-scarcity aspect of knowledge. Although I guess you can't really call it post-scarcity because you still have to hire a service to do it. Um, but Heinlein here obviously doesn't want to get rid of the market. He's not even really a market socialist because there are market socialists who think like uh, businesses should be owned by the workers, but you still have a market to see how those are distributed across the economy. And then you have, uh, you know, anarchists and communists who say, no, just there shouldn't be a market. There should just be a gift economy and people should just get what they, they need um, from each according to their abilities to each according to their needs. Heinlein doesn't want either of those things. He seems to still have this love for the private business, the the, the private establishment, uh, the ind- you know the entrepreneurial kind of entrepreneurial figure. And so we see that here that there's apparently these brokers, knowledge brokers, who are the middlemen and they, and they're like business people or or maybe they're petty entrepreneurs. Maybe it's like an Uber system almost, where whoever gets the order finds the information and then sends it on and gets the fee. It does actually sound kind of like a Uber, who uh, an Uber uh, system there with the knowledge distribution. But that that's sort of the vision of the internet he has here, um, and we'll, and we'll see if we see that later on in his in his work. Now our first big, our first kind of wake up into this world comes with sex stuff because he's she's naked in front of him and he has to come to terms with that. And he eventually went in Rome, takes off his clothes too, so. You get to have these nudist scenes. Uh, and even when they go out, he's like, oh, should I be naked? And she's kind of like, it doesn't really matter if you want, if you want clothes or not. It's up to you. Um, but over time, he's going to learn that basically marriage is purely a contractual thing. People can enter into it if they want. Most people don't. Uh, people can have multiple lovers. That's It's not a moral judgment in any way. Um so that and then the next thing that in, comes up is is work right and so that's the question that our narrator or our, our point of view character not narrator uh our point of view has about this world is like well why do people work if they have this heritage if they have this ubi and her ex- answer is most people do work because they like to it's it's that's kind of common in a lot of these utopias where it's like if you have a rational system of distribution and in, in production people will do things because they want the extra money because generally they like the work uh, but they don't work um that as much so a surgeon is mentioned so here's here's a quote here so, so she says most professional people work regularly because they like to take a surgeon for example he will work 40 weeks every year. He is as famous and loves his work. His vacation will be as busy as his credit work. Take me, for example. I work every week. She's an actress or something, or a dancer. She says, I will work every week now and I have for quite some time and broadcast like tonight every week, not to mention recordings for stories and songs. And quote. So every, most people seem to work, and there are a few people who just don't, but that's, there, there's no moral judgment about that. It's just, yeah, some people just don't work. That's, that's up to them. They, they just don't dig it. Um, but she says, like, look at your world. You A lot of people don't work in your time, but 
it was not by choice. A lot of people, it's during the Great Depression, right? So a lot of people were not working, but it wasn't by their choice. It was something they were forced into. So, um, so that's the thing with work. And then we're, we're again reminded, this is not European style socialism. We're talking about this, all these businesses are our own. These individual workers have contracts. There doesn't seem to be much place for like labor unions. There doesn't need to be. Heinlein just sort of averts that. Um, there's not a, much concern about like conditions because I guess the idea is people would just walk away if they didn't like the conditions. So our surgeon who has 12 weeks vacation, um, I think most of us would be pretty happy with that. Um, few of us would complain, right? But people work as much as they want. It's, it's, and there's like a, a woofy element too, hinted at here. Like there's a question of like, why, you know, if healthcare is free, why do the surgeons that are the best want to do this if they're not getting paid that much? And, and the answer kind of is it's woofy. It's prestige. It's clout. It's the fact that important, famous, talented people come to you for their surgeries, you know, is proof that you're a great surgeon. And that's, that's enough uh, for that. Um, now, anyways, uh, I think it's in Chapter 4 where we get our first long spiel um and it's just there's a couple of just people who become the conduit for these ideas one's a kind of a historian and it's kind of like oh i'll introduce you to this historian and you can catch up about the past and then there's like a 50 page chapter about that and later on it's with economics and later on with the psychology and criminal justice but our first really long uh discourse is in the is is history and i'm not going to go into all this history myself um, I mentioned last time that this sort of seems to require an isolationism and our author gives us that isolationism by basically destroying Europe um, in a third world war. So we get some of the history of how that happened. Um, and there's just a lot of, I guess, I think it's kind of creative. I think there's a lot of thought put into this future history he's trying to write here. Because uh, he's picking it up right with 1939. And, and he doesn't imagine Roosevelt getting multiple terms uh, after 1940. Um, he, he basically thinks um, like World War II essentially doesn't happen. He doesn't really imagine it happening. Well, let, let's just read this. Uh, well, I guess th there is sort of a Second World War, but it's different. Obviously, he's not going to be able to predict the war as it actually happened, right? So he writes, um, the, With the collapse of the loyalists in Spain, the fascist states were ready to take on the democracies. France was torn with internal dissensions and strikes. The Conservative Party was in power in England and apparently committed to a do-nothing policy. The fascist power struck and the First World War was repeated. The democracies failed to hold up, although they lost battle after battle. Oh, the democracies failed to fold up, although they lost battle after battle. The end came not through the intervention of the United States. Vanderberg had no stomach for that, but through the economic collapse of Germany. She had entered this war in a physical condition, much poorer than that of 1914, and she couldn't stand a long war. And then Adolf Hitler uh, committed suicide. Mussolini... Uh, got out more gracefully, submitted his resignation to the king. I mean, I guess there is some prescience there. Like the Allies winning the war despite losing many battles, Hitler killing himself. The But obviously he doesn't do a very good job of 
of predicting it. But that's okay. It doesn't really matter because all this is building up towards a a mega war in Europe, which by two which led to by 2010. Europe having only 25 million people in it. Basically, 90% of the population is destroyed and they're pushed into a medieval uh, world. Now, there's still the problem then of, of American kind of being an empire. And the way he, he gets rid of this too with another war, a conflict in with Latin American states. And then what happens, and, and the order might be not exactly right here, but this is roughly what I recall, with the end of that war, the United States moves towards a system of electing or voting on war, putting the power of war in the hands of the people directly. So this is kind of how democracy and non-interventionism really come together in Heinlein's mind. He doesn't think they will um, engage in, well, a democracy won't vote to go to war. It's only corrupt politicians who are looking after their own careers and prestige that would vote for a war. So he says it's very important to get this out of Congress's hands. And there's a long back and forth between our person from the past and our and the, essentially what we have here is the narrator at this point, a historian telling the story about, like, is that feasible? And he's like, of course, it's, it was feasible in your day. It's not that hard to count the votes. You People would know the issues. You could just have a referendum and then have the ballots ready war no war the ballots don't could just be generic and you could have an election even in the middle of a crisis count them within you know by the night by by the end of the day just like with a presidential election you you can know who won um and it wouldn't be state by state it would be you know a majority vote mandate and you'd have a clear um winner and who would always win well no war would always win so Heinlein imagines democracy of being the pre preventative key to stopping um, foreign intervention. Because again, it's very important that we have a non we have no one interfering with the United States economically to mess up this system, um, this uh, this experiment, and we can't have the United States itself being an empire. Then eventually we get to the implement implementation of the social credit reforms and all that. But there is one. Um, one thing in the way, and that's the reaction. Um, and where does Heinlein see that reaction coming from? Well, he sees it coming from the religious nuts. So kind of the last big conflict described in this history, this history of the, la of the previous century that we get, or century and a half, is uh, basically like the renewed crusades, which come out of popular grassroots, millenarian, religious, radical beliefs. Uh, rooted in moral reform. And so they start to implement them. And that's things like, again, to quote, Sunday closing laws, tax exemptions for church property, practically all laws related to marriage and the relations between the sexes, including laws forbidding divorces, countrywide rules permitting only monogamous relationships, laws against fornication and other taboo sexual relations, and laws forbidding birth control, laws prohibiting the teaching of certain scientific doctrines, especially a man's kinship to other animals, all laws of censorship for moral reasons of the stage, press, radio, and speech, Certain taboos of words and speech forms, laws prohibiting certain parts of the body being exposed to view, laws prohibiting the drinking of alcohol per se, laws against smoking cigarettes, any law which takes a paternalistic attitude towards the citizen with, re 
with the purpose of his ensuring its moral perfection rather than the purpose of relegating his conduct to prevent him from damaging other persons and vice versa, prevent him from damaging others. Um, so those are a brief summary of what these kind of moral reformers get into. Um, and then he, um, and then they actually get into involved in like essentially religious sadism of sorts, where there's basically like a, almost like a Ku Klux Klan type of uh, religious nuts who will go out and kind of enforce these rules, also creating um, an economic reaction to women's rights, abolishing higher education, and all that. And then who saves the day? Who saves the day from these Puritans? It is the libertarians. The libertarian element of the population, unorganized, because they're libertarians and they're hard to organize, um, but forced by the history, historical moment, to mobilize against them. And so we have this um, anti-Scudder. Well, it's Scudder, right, is the name of the, of, the, of the leader of the movement. So we have this anti-Scudderite reaction. And the result of that is a new constitution. When they're finally defeated and normal government is put back in place, we get a new constitution which has enshrined in it a new right. And that right is, quote, every citizen is free to perform any act which does not hamper the equal freedom of another. No law shall for, 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 forbid the performance of any act which does not damage the physical or economic welfare of other person. No act shall constitute a violation of law valid under this provision unless there is such damage or immediate present danger of such damage resulting from that act, end quote. So we can tell this is what Heinlein wants. This is his libertarian dream law here, where basically you have um, no, no victimist crimes, obviously, here. Um, anything no moral law so moral offense is not does not qualify it has to be physical or economic wrong to be done to another to restrict it so no victimless crimes no uh no moral crimes of any sort so the walking around naked thing that doesn't hurt someone economically or physically it might hurt them emotionally or psychologically if you're a religious nut right but or if you're a prude or whatever, but hopefully we're getting beyond that, right? That's what Heinlein hopes, at least, that we that, that wouldn't even be an issue anymore. Um, and and this becomes the new, this is like the new, for, like the, the new central document of the Constitution. So he doesn't have to rewrite the whole Constitution, he just amends it, um, keeping it. Uh, and then the state's job is not to regulate behavior at all at that point. The state's job then is only to serve. So the other things they do is they get rid of corporate personhood. They enshrine a right to privacy, obviously not specifically in the Constitution. Um, and that and that basically is that, along with the social credit stuff um, as the proactive, what the government does to serve the people and to serve the economy. And it is not presented as socialism. It's presented as simply a way to make sure the productive capacities of the country are always sustained because by keeping the demand up you never want to shut down those factories if there's a if there's the capacity to make it it should be made as long as people want it and how do you assure that happens well you sure that people can spend um, and it's very simple calculus it's not crazy it's if you have x amount of dollars in the system and you have five percent economic growth 
or you can perceive 5% economic growth, that means you're going to want 5% more money out there. All right now, who creates that? Well, as this book spends pages and pages reminding us, in our world, that's created by banks. Banks do it via the free market and, you know, interest rates, not, I guess, those aren't totally free market, but, you know, banks play a central in the creation of money through loaning it, through, 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 through creation of debt. So that's irrational. So they just take that power from the banks and give the money creation power to, to Congress where it belongs. It's in the Constitution, obviously, that Congress can coin money for whatever purpose it, it deems necessary. So that 5%, that's the amount of money you create. And you distribute it, sometimes directly to businesses, but largely in the form of this heritage. I think that's how it works. And taxation would just be uh, just the bookkeeping. Taxation is just bookkeeping at that point. It's it's to prevent inflation, right? Or or you know, you lower taxes to prevent deflation. It's it's all, it's just bookkeeping. That's all taxation is at this point. It's not a and I think there is an income tax on on people's labor, just like there there is. But that seems to help fund the heritage and uh, help, you know, rationalize the, the money supply. So I think that's good. Uh, I'm, I'm still feel I'm cutting short this book a little bit, but um, I don't want to get too much in the trees with it. Um, there is a pretty long discussion trying to justify the social credit system with kind of an economic game and kind of a classroom system. But I, I think with these two episodes, I think you get the big idea of what what Heinlein's trying to do in this book. And I think it's an admirable effort. It's a pity it wasn't uh, published or I'm, I'm not quite sure. I didn't read the introduction so uh, by um, Spider Robinson. So I don't quite know why um, Heinlein chose not to pursue publication. Maybe he couldn't find a publisher for it. But we know that after this, he turned to... Um, to more straight fiction storytelling. Um, and we're going to start with that in the very next episode with his first published um, story, uh, and that is Lifeline. Um, so I'm looking forward to talking uh, about that novel with you next time. So I'll see you then. Uh, let me know what you've thought of For Us to Living, and I'll um, gladly respond to you. You can email me at 100pagescast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.